Tits up is both an expression used when things have gone terribly wrong and a phrase coined as a rallying cry to stand up straight, own the stage, and knock them dead. There are few things in this world that can make your life go tits up more quickly than a breast cancer diagnosis, especially for adolescent and young adult women. This podcast is meant to give us AYAs, a feeling of community, understanding, and power, helping us to walk into each day with a feeling of tits up. Hello, listeners. This is Megan. I'm Sam. (laughs) And today we are joined by Courtney. Uh, Courtney Kelly is an attorney in Colorado, and she does estate planning. Now, before we go any farther, I want to give a bit of a trigger warning. We are going to be talking about some tough topics today. We're going to be talking about end-of-life planning. That is something that you do not think that you are capable of listening to right now or hearing about. Feel free just to turn it off and come back to this episode anytime that you want. Um, So now that that is out of the way, we are moving forward. Courtney, welcome. We are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Megan and Sam. It is a pleasure to be here. Courtney is, um, as I said, an estate planning attorney. So you do wills, trusts, advanced directives, all of that stuff, right? Correct. Yeah. And I also do some probate um, and guardianships, conservatorships. Um, When I first started practicing, I did mostly litigation. So I was in the courtroom a lot when people were fighting about their wills or their trusts or in a guardianship or conservatorship. And now I practice mainly on the transactional side. So um, preparing the wills, preparing the trusts and all the documents that go with an estate plan. Okay. Thank you. And one of the the big reasons we have you specifically on today is because you also had breast cancer. Is that correct? Correct. I've actually been through breast cancer twice. So I was diagnosed um, the first time when I was 25. I was in woo, my woo, first year. 20s. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're rare. Uh, <laughs> Not in a good way. Um, I was 25. It was my first year of law school. And I felt oh a lot. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was actually a month before finals, which... Megan, you you can imagine what that's like. So um, I'd already been that, through one semester and had done really well. That makes my heart stop. That makes my oh, heart was... just stop thinking about law school and breast cancer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it, it was almost so unbelievable and traumatic that I just you just kind of get through it because you have no other choice. And there's so much going on. And I I had a really supportive law school. I, I truly do not think that I would have graduated on time um, and have made it through as smoothly as I did without the support of of my law school and, and professors and friends. Um, so I was one month before finals. I found the lump. They, um, my doctor took it very serious and sent me over the same day to the local hospital. I had the ultrasound and biopsy that day and got the phone call two days later that it was cancer, and decided to do the lumpectomy before finals. Because the lumpectomy, I mean, you can bounce back relatively quickly from. And then um, the plan was to start radiation that summer during my internship in Wichita. Um, And I had done the, um, it's called the Oncotype DX. And so it came back relatively low. And so they had 
said that they didn't recommend that I do chemo. So I only had to have surgery and then it was going to be radiation, kind of a long story, but the radiation oncologist said, you're young. I really would prefer not to radiate if we don't have to. And he had recommended that I have a double mastectomy. So during winter break that year, I had a double mastectomy, um, really mostly to avoid radiation. And then Fast forward to 2016, a month before my wedding, and I found another lump in the same breast. Oh, my and God. thought, well, there's no way, right? I mean, I've, I had a mastectomy, and, and this is just really quick. It was just a couple of years, and went in for the MRI, and, you know, it lit up, and the rest is history. So I had a local recurrence, and we waited. We still had our wedding, and then... Three days after the wedding, when we got back to, at the time we were living in Oklahoma, I had another lumpectomy and then ended up going through 36 rounds of radiation. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was rough. Um, but I, again, did the oncotype. It came back low, so I did not have to go through chemo. So I just went back on the um, hormone medication. Okay, so are you on tamoxifen? Is that the hormone medication? Yeah, at the time, it was just tamoxifen, and then around 2016, 2017 is when um, some of those studies were coming out that showed that the ovarian suppression and aromatase inhibitor for premenopausal women actually um, had a, a better impact on recurrence, so it lowered your recurrence rate. Um, so during that time, we were talking about switching to the ovarian suppression and an AI, but I wanted to get pregnant. So I actually went off the medication and had my first child in 2018. And then when I went back on the meds, that's when I started doing the ovarian suppression and AI as my treatment. And they said I'd be on that for about 10 years. Yikes. And you have a family history of this too, don't you? So not at the time. So this is interesting. So when I went in, I had like no risk factors um, other than being female. There's like the four or five risk factors. And um, I have older sisters, my mom, my grandma's lived to their 90s, no history of breast cancer. So this was truly out of left field. And then in 2019, my older sister, um, she's three years older than me, she found a lump. And went in and she was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer in 2019. And then um, three years later in 2022, my oldest sister, there's four of us, my oldest sister was diagnosed with breast cancer. So it went in reverse order. And now there is a history, but I was the first one and the youngest. Um, so we still have a third sister that has not been diagnosed, but um, they're, they're monitoring her very closely and she qualifies for breast MRIs and um, really good screening. Good. Isn't that ridiculous that we have to qualify for it yeah. in this country well, and, instead of just going and getting one? It's so frustrating because my sister that was diagnosed right after me, she had talked to her um, OBGYN and, and the OBGYN said, you know, you're really not at an increased risk. So they weren't monitoring her very closely and come to find out that, yeah, when your sister has been diagnosed, you, you are at an increased risk. Um, and so... In hindsight, we wish she had been monitored a little closer, um, but but she did. She was able to find it relatively early and and get treatment. So we're we're happy about that. Good, good. So everybody's okay now. 
Yes, everyone. My sister just hit her four-year mark, which for triple negative breast cancer is a huge milestone. Um, And then my sister that was diagnosed last year, um, hers was very early. So it was actually DCIS, um, stage zero, and she's doing great. And I'm in remission. So I hit my 10-year mark from the first diagnosis, um, which is great. Um, Unfortunately, when you've had a local recurrence, you typically consider your remission and anniversary to be from the recurrence which was 2016 so i just hit seven years yay yeah and <laughs> still something to celebrate right and you have another thing to celebrate you just had a baby i did i just had my third baby my son Woo! he was born in september um again went off all my medication with the support of my doctor um and had our third and final child Uh, And I go back to work on Monday. Oh, my goodness. I think that's so important for a lot of our listeners to hear because, you know, I I can't carry kids. I had a full hysterectomy. But there are a lot of people that I have talked to that are really deeply concerned about, you know, what if I do go off of tamoxifen and try to have a kid or, you know, maybe they're not on tamoxifen. But um, especially with estrogen and progesterone positive cancers. Now, I don't know if the two are correlated. Um, but I know that a lot of people that have had estrogen and progesterone positive breast cancer are concerned about having a baby and what that will do, like what the pregnancy will do, kind of like flooding you with hormones. Um, so I think it's really good for people to hear that, like, not only can you have one, you can have three. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And, and no, that's a, that's a great point because, um, there's two things going on. So. One of the barriers is that um, when you do have hormone receptor positive cancer, when you get pregnant, your home hormones skyrocket, right? So there's some concern that maybe that increases your risk. But the other concern in the way that my, my oncologist framed this is that really the risk is more that you're going off your hormones suppressing drugs. And there's evidence that when you take, when you go off your drugs early, there can be an increase in recurrence. But she said the studies are, there's so few studies just because a lot of women don't historically have not gone off the medication, taken breaks to have children. She says, we really just don't know. Um, but as long as, and her rule, it's a two-year rule. She doesn't want me off my medication for longer than two years. So, you know, if, fortunately, I was able to get pregnant quickly and then get back on the medication quickly. And so I had her support with the understanding with her and my spouse that we probably were taking a risk. We don't know how big of a risk and that it was a, you know, well thought out decision and that whatever happens, we accept the outcome. And that, you know, combined is when we decided to go ahead and and have kids. And I I do get a lot of people that um, react surprisingly to that because I think there is this misconception that once you've been diagnosed um, and depending on what kind of treatment you have to have, a lot of women feel like children are just out of the question and that may not be true so um definitely something to think about with um and talk about with with your medical provider i love it congratulations that's so <laughs> <Thank> exciting you. <laughs> You're and great advice too um i think a lot even family members and maybe close friends kind of look at you sideways and you say oh yeah i'm thinking about having a baby or you know i still want to have a baby i think some people think that just because you got cancer 
that that's no longer a possibility for you or something like that. And that kind of really pains me because I think we feel that on a whole deeper level on guilt and that, that we just shouldn't feel. So Yeah, absolutely. Mommy guilt is already a big enough thing. We don't need to add others' opinions <laughs> about you even becoming a mommy in the first place to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I dealt with a lot of that with, with family members that, um, it's, you know, spoke their mind and, and just felt like I was putting my life at risk by having children. And, um, you know, that's okay. I, 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 I'm grateful that they expressed their concern, but, um, I just had to remind them that, you know, I, I had, I've looked at the research. I talked to my oncologist. This was a very well thought out decision. And a lot of times that would put their mind at ease and they, they would be become supportive. Good. Yeah. Family's tough, man. Um, you know, if, Everybody has an opinion, but then your family's opinions are just times 10, you know, yeah, no kidding. on what no you should kidding. do. And they uh, rarely have a filter. <laughs> For better or worse, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So let's, let's kind of get into the meat of what we're going to be talking about today. So um, doing estate planning work, that is planning for end of life. Um, and... You know, we are inevitably going to have many listeners like myself who, you know, it, it became apparent to me at a young age that I may need a will or a trust or something. Um, but then there are also going to be listeners of ours that have been um, diagnosed metastatic um, or terminal. Um, and these questions will likely be in the front of their mind of, is this something that I need to do? Um, and if so, how do I go about it the right way and do it the right way? Um, you know, I think, especially with younger women, um, myself included, what goes through my head is, well, I don't have kids. It's just me, my husband, and my dogs. Um, we've got a house, two cars, and some bank accounts. And to me, I would off the bat just kind of assume, oh, it goes it goes to my husband, the end. Um, but, you know, I've always wanted to, if I do die, um, I want to make sure that certain family members are getting something or maybe I'm making a contribution to a nonprofit that I really, really like um, or something. So that was kind of where my head was at, but this is going to be primarily, I think, focused on okay, this is kind of coming in on me fast. What what do I do? Um, so to kind of start with that, why don't I turn it over to you so we can talk briefly about the basics? You know, I don't want to get too in the weeds. Um, I know you and I can probably both get very much in the weeds. We're both attorneys. We could probably talk about this ad nauseum for a while. But just for people that are not attorneys, I'm going to let you kind of take it away and break down the different parts of an estate plan, let's just say, um, and what they should focus on, what they shouldn't focus on, um, and what all of the lingo means. Sure. Yeah. Happy to do that. And and as you kind of briefly mentioned earlier, you know, this isn't something, estate planning isn't something that most 20, 30, 40-year-olds think about. And it can be a, a tough topic, even for my clients that are older or ill um, or, or perfectly healthy, 
Um, this is a topic that a lot of people struggle with. It's a topic that a lot of people tend to put on the back burner um, and they think that they're going to get to it one day. And it, it's certainly not something that I want people to feel like they need to wait to talk to an estate planning attorney until they've been diagnosed metastatic or faced a, a really serious illness. Um, you know, this is something that I think it's a, it's a good thing to start thinking about in your 20s, even if you're perfectly healthy, just because there's aspects to an estate plan that um, are, are go beyond just what happens to your assets at your death. Um, a lot of estate planning actually impacts decisions that are made while you're still alive. So I'm going to break this down um, in terms of an overview into what I call like the estate plan and the game plan. So the estate plan is, is typically the documents that um, the attorney will draft. And those are typically a will, sometimes maybe a trust, a medical power of attorney, a financial power of attorney, and a living will, or what we call an advanced directive. So those are typically the cornerstone of an estate plan. There's also what I call the game plan. And that's a really broad term for, okay, what are we trying to achieve here? Um, do we care about avoiding probate? Um, are we pretty confident that based on your family situation and your financial situation that we can have a really simple plan, maybe even a plan that doesn't involve ever having to go to court and we can just jointly own property with a loved one or have a beneficiary designation on our accounts or what we call a beneficiary deed. Um, so it's really just overall kind of what's the what's the game plan in terms of where we want to head with um, these documents that we're going to draft and what level of sophistication are we going to need and complexity for the estate plan. Um, and I can typically within about 15 minutes of talking to somebody come up with a game plan and outline what the estate planning documents are going to look like. It, it really doesn't take that long to talk to somebody and have a pretty good understanding of their financial situation and their family situation. So, <clears throat> so I would encourage, I would encourage people to at a minimum, um, get in touch with an estate planning attorney. I, I'd say most estate planning attorneys, uh, myself included, are, are more than willing to get on a phone call with somebody for 15, 20 minutes and tell them, you know, um, I, I think you need, you, you most likely need at least a will. Um, you know, sometimes you, you, you may want to incorporate a trust, what we call a revocable trust or living trust into the estate plan. Um, and just get a general sense of the the level of planning that needs to be done and, and hear, hear out the client's objectives. And, um, and then at the end of that conversation, I can typically quote somebody a fee. I do most of my estate planning work on a flat fee basis. And so I'll say, you know, look, I think I can do all of that work, all of these phone conferences, you know, hop on the phone with your financial advisor for $2,500 or whatever whatever the flat fee may be. And, and that'll encompass all of those conversations and all of those documents. Um, <clears throat> so let's, I'm going to talk briefly about really the two different types of estate plans. So there's the, <clears throat> excuse me, so there's the will-based estate plan, and then there's what we call a trust-based estate plan. And I think most people are familiar with what a will is. So a will is, is a document that 
really does three main things. So you nominate what's called an executor, or in Colorado is called a personal representative. And that's the person that's going to administer your estate for you when you pass away. Um, they're the one that there's they're the ones that are going to have a lot of power. They're going to want be the ones that can come into the home, um, safeguard all your assets, uh, marshal all your assets, um, interact with the bank, interact with other professionals, interact with the court. Um, they're really the boots on the ground. Um, so typically, that's somebody that you you trust, um, a spouse or a parent, a child. Um, the other aspect to a will that's really important is um, you can nominate in that will the guardian for your minor children. You can also do that through a separate document, but for the most part, that guardian or conservator nomination is is in the will. And then um, probably the most commonly understood or known aspect of a will is um, the disposition of your assets. So that's where you will put, you know, I want my neighbor to get... X amount of dollars, everything else to my spouse or my children. Um, and that that part of the will is really important because oftentimes if you don't have a will, the um, state law will dictate who gets your assets. And a lot of times the the people who you want to receive your assets are, are not who are going to receive your assets under state law. So that's a will. Um, I think a lot of people that I talk to have a misconception that if you have a will, you don't have to go through probate. And that is not true. So um, whether or not you have to go through probate is a whole other discussion. But if you have a will, there's a chance that the will may never need to be probated because you just don't have assets that were in your estate that were over a certain dollar amount that require the will to be probated. But a will... So for Real quick, so for people that don't know what probate is, can you explain that real quick? Yeah. So probate, in its simplest terms, is the process of the court um, taking jurisdiction essentially over your estate and no, and officially appointing somebody, the personal representative, to um, administer your estate for you. So it's, it's through the court system. And if you have a will, that's where you, you take the will down to the courthouse, you lodge the will with the court, and then you initiate what's called a probate proceeding. Um, and in Colorado, there's formal and informal probate. Um, and typically, I'd say 90% of the time, we can do an informal probate. If you die without a will and you have assets in your estate that exceed a certain dollar amount, in Colorado, it's $70,000, you still have to go through probate, um, but you don't have a will. So that goes back to the um, what I was saying earlier with the with state law. State law will just determine who has priority to serve as your personal representative and who gets your assets. So that's probate. And a lot of times probate gets a bad rap. I think a lot of people you talk to, they've, they've known somebody that goes through probate and it's expensive or it can take two to three years to settle an estate. Um, probate is public. So if anybody wanted to get into the court system and get access to very confidential information, they could. So a lot of times um, when, when clients come to me, there's this concern or this desire to avoid probate. Um, and I, we can get into this a little later, but probate in Colorado is actually pretty simple since Colorado has the Uniform Probate Code. And so I have to a lot of times tell clients that, you know, in Colorado, probate's not not the end of the world. It's it's we can do a probate relatively inexpensively and quickly in Colorado 
through the informal process. Now, there's other states, um, Florida, Illinois, California, where the probate process is is much more expensive and typically takes a lot longer to fully administer an estate. So in those states, a lot of attorneys typically recommend using a trust more often than we might in Colorado purely to avoid probate. Um, so I'm going to get into trust next. So a will um, guarantees probate, essentially, if the will has to be probated. But a trust, a trust can serve many purposes, um, a trust-based plan. But one of the key purposes that uh, my clients will, will choose to incorporate a trust into their estate plan is because trusts pass your assets outside of probate. So you maintain confidentiality. The court never sees the trust instrument unless there's a, a, a trust action that gets filed, but typically that's that's rare. Um, so you avoid probate. Um, another benefit of having a trust-based estate plan is that the trust, once you sign it, it's there. It's ready to go. It's ready to serve as a vehicle to transfer your assets. So during your lifetime, you could transfer your assets into your trust. So I could um, have a deed where I transfer my home into my trust, my cars, my bank accounts, and the trust actually operates essentially like a holding entity to hold your assets for you. And one benefit, in addition to avoiding probate, is that if you become incapacitated, which is very on topic today, um, for a variety of reasons, if you become incapacitated, your successor trustee, because typically you serve as your own trustee at first, your successor trustee can start administering your assets for you and you can avoid, most of the time, having to go get a conservatorship. So a conservatorship is a court proceeding where the court oversees the administration of your finances and your financial assets. So if you have all your assets in a trust or the ability for a financial power of attorney to transfer your assets into your trust, you can avoid having to go through the court process or a conservatorship, and you can just have your successor trustee help administer your finances for you while you're incapacitated um, and until you pass away or until the incapacity resolves itself. Um, so that's the second main reason that my clients like to have trust. And then the third reason would be confidentiality because, again, the trusts are private. They don't get filed with the court and um, your loved ones can receive your assets essentially almost right away after you pass away. Typically, there's an administration period that can take a couple months. Um, but for the most part, assets can start to be distributed or retitled shortly after your death. Okay, thank you for that because that's to me that's very clarifying. Um, and <laughs> I was telling you earlier, like I, I'm 38. I'm an attorney. I've had cancer, and I still don't have one of these. Um, and I know that I need to. I know that I need to, but I just keep putting it off. Um, and I think my, I guess the question that I'm having right now is, how often do you see people under 40? come to you um because that's kind of the focus on you know our podcast is breast cancer under 40 um and then follow up to that question is what do you say to people that tell you that they are too young or they really don't have anything um you know if you're just 
married with two dogs and you've got a house, you know, I've, I, I've heard a lot of people say this to me in my line of practice, which is, you know, oh, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't need that. There's, there isn't much. It's just all going to go to my spouse or something like that. Is that how that works? Or <laughs> what would you say to people? Wink, wink. <laughs> sure, sure. So yes, um, to your first question, I do have um, a handful of clients that are under 40 that are facing um, not not necessarily just cancer, but other terminal illnesses. Um, and they, um, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say it's common, but I would say, you know, I probably currently have about 10 or 15 clients that are um, in their 20s or 30s that are, that are facing a very serious, potentially um, terminal illness. And so, um, you know, and typically that diagnosis is what caused them to come to me to do their estate plan, but, but not always. So sometimes there's clients that had an existing estate plan. And then when they're facing this this new diagnosis, um, it, it, they want to revisit their estate plan or have somebody else revisit the estate plan and just get things updated. So um, not not uncommon at all. Um, back to what I was saying earlier about the game plan and the level of estate planning. So, Megan, if you walked in my door and you said, I'm married, I don't have children, we don't have, you know, five houses all over the country and a yacht. Um, which is much more common to not have those types of that type of wealth. Um, your estate plan, our game plan is going to be fairly simple. And it's it's going to be, look, I don't think we're going to need a probate. You probably don't need a trust. Let's just button up your beneficiary designations. Let's make sure that you reach out to your the, the financial institutions that you have where you have accounts at. Um, let's take a look at your deed to your home and let's just make sure that at your death, all of those assets are going to pass to your spouse. And um, in addition to that, even if we're very, very confident that you have updated your beneficiary designations, that your deed, you know, the property's held in joint tenancy, it's still not a bad idea to have a will. It's going to be the most simple will um, that we offer but it's just going to be there as a safety net in case some asset, some account, for some reason, it ends up in your probate estate. It ends up not going to your spouse. And I've seen this happen um, many times for a variety of reasons where the beneficiary paperwork um, wasn't accepted or it was invalid for some reason or there's somebody else challenging ownership to that account. They said, oh, yeah, I know that you know she had put her husband down as the beneficiary, but right before her death, she told me she really wanted to have this account and they run to the courthouse and they open a probate to try to challenge that transfer to your husband. Well, what will happen if you have a will is, and you've nominated your husband, now your husband's going to have priority to serve as your executor. And if in the rare event that account does fall to your estate, the default will be that the will will control and that account will go back to your husband the way you intended. So even if, even if we think we've done everything right, even if we've triple checked all of our beneficiary designations and we're confident that we're not going to need a probate and that everything's going to pass what we call by operation of law at your death to your spouse, it's still a good idea just to have a very simple will there. Again, just as a safety net in case something funky happens and we see it happen all the time, 
um, especially back when I was doing litigation. And it's it's just there in case we end up needing to have a probate. You have very clearly spelled out your wishes. And if there's some rogue family member that's trying to make their way in and, and get get one of your accounts that we've we've prevented them from doing that. I feel like we all have one rogue family member. <laughs> Whether you know it or not. <laughs> sometimes you got everybody in your mind. mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you, you see those wheels turning. I know my rogue family member. <laughs> I know um, the other thing. So here's the other here's the other critical part. A lot of times I think people focus on what they own and their assets, but there's a whole other part to estate planning that I think it's overlooked. And it's, it's so for you, Megan, if you walked in my door, I think we could get through that conversation pretty quickly about a will and your beneficiary designations and what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. The other conversation that is almost equally, if not more important, is going to be making sure that we have a medical and financial power of attorney in place for you and an advanced directive. And let me walk through those really quick. So a medical power of attorney, that document is in place while you're alive. And we want to make sure it's durable, which means that if you become incapacitated, and incapacitation can take many forms. So if, um, let's just say you underwent a really simple procedure, but you're under anesthesia and you really can't communicate and the doctors have decided we need to take you back into surgery and, and do something else that you had not previously consented to. Your medical power of attorney who you've nominated in your medical power of attorney document can can authorize consent to that procedure on your behalf. Um, and so oftentimes that's how those documents are used. Um, in other situations, if somebody is just so ill, um, whether it's from a disease or from treatment, um, the, the medical power of attorney, again, can work with the medical providers and make decisions on your behalf. And typically, we recommend nominating somebody that is a family member or a really trusted friend, somebody that's going to agree to serve, that's going to be level-headed, that's going to know your wishes, and is going to be able to make the best decisions on your behalf. And then um, you can also nominate a successor. So if that person is unavailable to serve, um, then the successor agent, we call them, can can step in and make those decisions for you. So that's medical. And then there's a financial power of attorney. And that can be um, effective immediately or what we call springing. So either it's effective immediately and that person can go down to the bank for you and sign documents for you. Let's just say you're out of town or out of the country. Um, or you can make that document effective when you become incapacitated. So um, once a, a doctor, it's usually a physician that has to say, yes, this person is medically unable to make financial decisions, the power of attorney kicks in and the financial power of attorney can do all sorts of things with your finances, you know, file your taxes, collect rent, make pay bills for you, go down to the bank. They essentially step in your shoes and can do any financial transaction that you've authorized them to do. The third document is the advanced directive. And I would say this is for all my clients, not, not just clients facing a, a terminal illness, um, but for, for all my clients, I say they struggle with this document the most. It's, it's probably the most deeply personal document that you're going to sign in my office. And what an advanced directive is, is 
it's guidance and instructions to your medical providers when you are at your end of life or if you're in a persistent vegetative state. I don't know if you guys remember, Sam, you might be too young, but um, back in the 90s, there was this lady. Her name was Terry Shivo. She lived in Florida. And I remember seeing this on the news because she, I think she had suffered a heart attack. And the doctors, they did scans, everything, and they determined that she was um, in a vegetative state. So she was in and out of consciousness, but there was no coming back. There was no recovering from this. Very little brain activity. Um, she couldn't do anything on her own. And her husband said, you know, I talked to her. She said she didn't want to be in this situation. Literally, she was being kept alive through a feeding tube. That's it. That was her quality of life was um, basically, in my opinion, very, very low. Um, well, her parents said, no, there's no way she would want us to withdraw life-sustaining treatments. Um, she, she wanted to be kept alive. And that they, they ended up going to court. And that case went through the court system for 15 years and then finally i think the third while time she I was to... kept alive right yes while she alive. was kept alive in a condition that i think most people would find to be pretty awful and would not want to be kept alive um and so after 15 years the um, supreme court i think they concluded that the husband um had the authority to make that decision and based on the evidence it supported the fact that um, she would want those life-sustaining treatments withdrawn. So that's when we saw um, these these advanced directives become really popular because I think a lot of people saw what had happened to her and, and just thought that was really awful. So the way the document's set up, there's several forms. Um, you can go online and find these forms. We have our own form we give as, as part of our bundle, the state planning documents. And essentially, some of, some of the documents, there's a lot of options, but I use one that's really simple. And it just says if you're facing a terminal illness or if you're in a persistent vegetative state, you get three options. The first option is discontinue treatment. If I am only being kept alive through artificial nutrition and hydration, I want that treatment discontinued right away. And, and, and that's, that, the discussion's not even going to be on the table unless a physician, typically two physicians, have determined you are terminally ill, you are essentially unconscious, you, you're, there's no coming back. Um, then that's when they're going to look at this document. So the, the first option is withdraw treatment. The second option on our form is continue treatment, but for X amount of days. So I'd say a lot of clients like to do maybe three to five days. Typically that's allow, that's to allow loved ones to have time to come say their goodbyes. And then the third option is to continue treatment indefinitely. Um, I'd say that's probably the rarest choice that I see. Um, but some people feel very strongly that, you know, maybe one day there will be a cure for their illness. Um, I would say typically in that situation, people pass away naturally um, pretty quickly, even before the three to five day window. Um, but there have been situations where these documents, we, we do end up having to use them and having to withdraw treatment based on that person's decision. And one thing that I really like about this document, I see a lot of families struggling because they feel like they want to make sure they're remembering their loved one's wishes correctly, and they don't want to do something that goes against their loved one's wishes. And this document very clearly spells out what the wishes are. And so they, you know, during grief and that stressful time, you may be surprised, but you, you can forget those conversations. Um, or people can have conflicting memories about 
what what kind of conversations they've had with that loved one. So this document, you can pull it out and say, okay, here, they very clearly wanted these treatments withdrawn as soon as possible. And it just takes that burden off of the loved ones and places that decision back to, back on the, the patient or the person that's ill. I mean, that's, um, first of all, I had forgotten about Terry Schiavo, but now that you bring that up, I remember that whole thing. That was that was wild. And I can't all I do is just feel bad for her. You know, like that's that's a nightmare. But also it's it's so human, you know, like her parents are saying, like, absolutely. Like, she cannot go. We can't do this without her. And I'm sure her husband also very much felt the same way, but he knew what she wanted. And. I, I do think it's, I mean, you just said it perfectly, but it might be worth reiterating. You know, I have thought about this so many times, um, you know, and I, I had never really thought about any of this before I got diagnosed. But now it's just something that comes into my head probably like once every other day, <laughs> uh, which may be morbid. That's for a different episode. <laughs> but I, in thinking about this, I don't want my husband or another family member to feel like it's their call to pull the plug, so to speak. I mean, that's not a great way of putting it, but I don't want them to have it on their hearts that they were the ones that made that decision. I want them to feel like we are, uh, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to tell them to turn off all the life-saving measures, but Megan told me that I have to, so I have to. That's how I want it to go. I don't want it to fall onto my husband or a parent or somebody and have them feel like they were the ones that made that decision and then have to live with that. Um, So I think that advanced directives are so, so, so important for, you know, all the reasons that you just brought up, but also as a way to kind of protect the emotional state the future emotional state of your loved ones mm-hmm. um, so that they know that it is you making this call and, you know, it It would stop. It, I'm sure it doesn't happen all the time, but it would probably help to stop the infighting between family members, um, you know, saying, well, we want to keep her alive. The other one saying, well, she doesn't want to. It, it takes that out of everybody's hands yeah, and they don't have absolutely. to sit with guilt and grief and all of that and have them feel like well i'm the one that did it because no no you are i am the one that did it yeah absolutely and something that i've also noticed is that some sometimes clients will say oh we did that through the doctor's office a few years ago and we don't need to revisit and i think i say well let's you know here here's the document let's go over the options again and a lot of times their their choices have changed and it can be, um, I, I had one situation where um, their, um, some of my clients, their father had gone through a terminal disease and his death was really drawn out. And they, because of that experience and, and watching him suffer for, I think it ended up being about three weeks, they, when they looked back at the choice they had made initially, um, felt very differently after they had gone through that experience and they had forgotten when they'd forgotten that they had chosen, I think they both picked 14 days. And when they redid it, they picked the first option was, which was withdraw treatment immediately. Cause to, to them, it was very clear he was suffering. Um, and so even if you feel like you've done this document or you've had these conversations, it's always good to revisit 
I'd say every maybe three to five years or after a major life event. So if a loved one's passed away or you're, you're facing a new diagnosis, um, that, that'd be a good time to start rethinking about these end of life decisions. And these can be, I mean, I, again, I think when it comes to what's going to happen to my stuff, that's tough. That's hard. Those are those are hard conversations. Those are hard things to think about. But when it comes to how you want to pass away and how long you want to be kept alive, um, those that's the hardest of hard conversations and personal, deep personal, sometimes spiritual, religious type of decisions and conversations that you're going to have. But they can be some of the most important. And, and they're good to have regardless of, of your health. Um, I have a lot of situations. I know we talked earlier about, you know, how many people, how many clients do you have that are terminally ill? And then there's a handful, but more often we get probate cases or clients that are coming in because a loved one has died unexpectedly. So a a heart attack, a stroke, and I'm talking about people in their thirties, car accidents, um, all sorts of stuff. And so even though you may not think that you need to have these conversations, even if you're perfectly healthy or you're, you're facing, you know, really good prognosis um, or a dire prognosis that, you know, you can still, especially with metastatic breast cancer, you know, I, I have known women, you know, that are on year 10, 15 living with stage four breast cancer. Um, so, so you just never know, but it's good to have those conversations periodically with, with your loved ones and write down, you know, sometimes these forms don't allow you to expand on your wishes. Um, so I encourage people that feel very passionate about some of those end of life decisions to write down their wishes um, in more detail and attach it to those documents just so it's very clear what that what that phase will look like for you or how you want it to look. I think that's really important. Thank you for that. I also need to hear that just to kind of give me a kick in the ass because um, you're right. I mean, you could just uh, you just get T-boned by a semi just driving home from work, you know, like it doesn't have to be cancer related. And I do not want to put my family in that position where they have to deal with all of that without my my input. Yes, also, I'm a bit we'll... of a control freak and I want some input <laughs> in what happens. Well, and if it makes listeners feel better. So I'm an estate planning attorney. This is what I do day in and day out. And I have breast cancer. I have recurrent breast cancer, um, stage two recurrent breast cancer. And, and so it's very much a reality that I can become metastatic at any point. And yet there are some updates to our estate plan that are very needed that I did not get around to doing. And I had some complications after I had my son. Um, And for my first two pregnancies, they went so smoothly. I had no complications. So I just thought the third would go the same. And and that's not at all what happened. And I actually, um, you know, the situation got pretty dire. And thinking back, I'm kicking myself because it's like, here I am, this estate planning attorney. I think I have all the time in the world to make updates to my estate plan. And something totally out of left field almost killed me, um, something that I wasn't expecting at all. Um, and so that was that was the kick in the butt that I needed when we got home and I was feeling better to go in and make those updates. And so if you're feeling guilty about having waited and having put this off, it's totally normal. Everyone does it. Um, and I think a good starting point to get over that hump is you don't have to commit to anything. All you have to do is is wherever you're living. Um, I'm based out of Denver, but we have affiliated law firms in every city in the in in not only the United States but actually all over the world. We're part of a network of law firms called Meritas, and I can find your local Meritas law firm. It's a 
typically a mid-sized law firm, um, peer vetted. They almost every law firm has an estate planning attorney, not all, but if and if they don't, they can refer you to somebody. But um, just call them and just tell them your situation. Ask if they'll give a, a free initial intake phone call. I'd say 90% of attorneys will do that. Yeah. Um, and that just gets the ball rolling. And and if that's even hard for you, I've had family members call me. So I've had, I this happens more than you'd think. I've had a sister call and say, um, hey, you know, my sister's diagnosed. She's really overwhelmed. She's going through treatment. I told her I would reach out to some attorneys, um, get a quote from them, interview them, see if they'd be a good fit. Um, and, and that's perfectly fine. I mean, we're not going to get into any, hopefully not too much confidential information, but a lot of times, um, you can, you can have a family member or a friend kind of be a surrogate, be somebody that can help you get that process started. Um, and typically that's what a lot of people need. They just need need a name. They need to know how much it's going to cost. Um, I need information from you, but a lot of times the family members can provide a lot of that information. And then, um, you know, typically I just have one or two meetings with my clients and it can be Zoom, telephone call, in person, whatever you're comfortable with. And I can have these documents drafted um, in a week or two and all of it done, you know, the the processing of the documents, um, if, if I need to talk to a financial advisor, that whole process can be done in less than a month, typically. Some attorneys are, are a little bit slower in their turnaround time. So I'm just speaking on my own timeline here. Um, but, but that's a good question to ask. You know, how quickly do you think you can get me drafts? Um, how quickly can I get in there to sign these documents? And then, you know, if you're really concerned, if you have a big procedure coming up, sometimes I'll have clients come in and just sign those powers of attorney. And we say, we're just going to wait on the will because based on our conversation, I think everything's going to be fine. I think everything's going to flow the way you want it to flow. I'm not worried. Uh, but if I am worried, if there's a massive life insurance policy or a house and you don't have a will and we know that house is going to go to mom under state law and you haven't talked to mom in 20 years, I'm going to do a quick will or a beneficiary deed and we're going to fix that quickly before you undergo your procedure. Um, so point being, I mean, I know the process can seem really overwhelming, but if, if you can pick up the phone or have a loved one pick up the phone and call an attorney, um, I think that's the hardest part. And then once you get past that, I think most people, the feedback I get is, whoa, that was a lot easier than I was expecting. That was a lot quicker. And now I feel so much peace. And I know that um, these important documents are in place and people know my wishes and things are going to be fine if something happens to me. I think that's so important. Um, you know, every time attorneys become involved in anything <laughs> in life, um, people tend to believe that that's about to make it so much more difficult. Um, and sometimes it does. Um, but I think especially in your area, you know, I mean, there, there, I do family law, as I've said before, there are a lot of scumbags <clears throat> in family law, um, you know, so attorneys can make it more difficult, but they can also make it a lot better. But when it comes to estate planning, I think it is really important to understand, you know, how quickly attorneys can do this. I think it's also important to realize that you don't know what you don't know. You know, like it's I have this like this is why I'm so much enjoying this conversation because I don't know this area. I stay in my lane um, and it, you'll probably be getting a call from me. Um, <laughs> and just to reiterate, you said it's called Meritas. Yeah. So our network of law firms, um, 
the the network is called Meritas, and I I love that my firm in Denver is part of this group because I just the nature of my work often involves um, a lot of out of state work. So we have property. A lot of my clients own property in Texas or Florida, um, a lake house in in Minnesota, or whatever the case may be. And without a Meritas connection, historically. When I was at my old firm, you'd, you'd, you'd have to go online or you'd have to ask other lawyers, hey, do you know a law firm in Minneapolis? You know, we need to do a deed or I need to have them look at this will. Um, but with Meritas, um, it, it's there's some guidelines. So you had to be a mid-sized law firm. You have to maintain a certain rating and you're rated by other attorneys that have worked with you who could be some of the most critical, <laughs> critical graders. Um, you know, were you efficient? Were you effective? Were you competent? Were your rates reasonable? And then they rate you, I think it's out of five stars and you have to maintain like a 4.5 at all times. So I know without having to do research that if I'm going to call up our Meritas affiliate in Florida because we need a deed done, um, or trying to avoid probate in Florida, which can be very, very expensive, um, then I know I'm going to be working with a law firm that that knows what they're doing. They're not going to overcharge my client, um, and it's just been a, it just adds a lot of value for my clients. And and something you had said earlier, and I just don't want to forget this this point. We don't know what we don't know, and I have seen this backfire a lot of times on clients because they think they're doing a good thing. So for example, if this is one of the ones that um, I think I see the most often that can have the most consequential tax consequences so clients they get this feeling of okay um either i'm I'm ill or i'm getting older and i want to start making gifts to my children and i want to start giving them my property now i want to just get this taken care of i just want to see that it's done and so what they'll do without the advice of an attorney they'll deed their home so let's say i'm going to deed my home to my son now and the problem with that under the current tax code is that when somebody dies and they own property, you get what's called a step up in basis. And I'm going to try to simplify this as much as I can. So when you purchase property, let's say I buy my home for $100,000. That's the basis in my property. So if I, went or, you know, if I sold it right away, um, the difference for the sale price from what I bought it, let's say it's $20,000. That's, you, you, in theory, depending on the type of asset, would need to pay what's called a capital gains tax. It's 20% on on that profit that you made, that gain. When you die, you get what's called a step up in basis. So let's say I bought my house for $100,000, but I die in 20 years. So my property is now worth a million dollars. If I die and leave my house to my daughter, she gets a step up. She gets a new basis. So when she goes and inherits that house at my death, her basis in the property is a million dollars. So if she sells it she, the next day, she pays zero dollars in capital gains tax. If I had gifted her the home the day before my death and I said, I just want to make sure this gets done. Here's my home. And I deed it to her. She gets as a gift during my life. She gets a carryover basis. So she gets my basis, which is one hundred thousand dollars. So she gets my house. She sells it the next day after I die for a million dollars. That difference, that $900,000, she's going to pay a capital gains tax on 20%. That's huge. Yikes. Right. Yikes. And people don't know that. And that's, you know, that's that's fair. That's Why would people know that? 
Um, and so we have to, I want to just make sure, especially during that initial conversation I have with clients, hey, give me a call before you do any gifting. Sometimes gifting is great. Sometimes we encourage gifting, especially if you have what's called a taxable estate. It's just for the really, really, really wealthy people um, in the world. We do that all the time. We do lifetime gifting, but it's done very methodically. It's done very, um, we, 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 it's, it's done for a specific purpose and it's done in a tax savvy way. Um, so it's just one of those things that even if you think you're doing your, your kids a favor, um, I would tell, I would give somebody that advice over the phone, even if, you know, just as, just as a, a prospective client, just say, don't do that. <laughs> don't gift yeah. those, don't gift those securities, those stock, that stock, um, anything that's gone up in value. If, um, if you can wait to gift those items until you die, you're, you're saving your loved ones a lot of tax. So that's super important. I'm glad that you brought that up. That. The two aren't necessarily connected, but my next question kind of has to do with life insurance. So for, for a lot of life insurance companies, they will have some sort of rider attached, like some sort of benefit rider attached to the life insurance policy that says, you know, if you are diagnosed with a terminal illness, they will pay out like mm -hmm. 90% or the full amount to you prior to your death and i mean for some people that is incredibly helpful to pay for like medical bills so a lot of things don't go to their family how often do you see people utilize that and what what does that look like and are there any implications to doing that because it seems like it's a really really good idea <laughs> you know if if that money is necessary but i've never heard of it in practice so it depends so i haven't seen this a lot i have seen this i have seen this um, and typically that decision is not made unless I have spoken to the financial advisor. Um, we've talked to the client and we fully understand their financial situation because what you don't want to happen is for them to get access to those, to that money. And then, for example, have really high medical bills that they need to be paid, that need to be paid. Um, and typically if life insurance is paid out to a loved one, and you pass away with medical debt, the medical the medical providers, the, the collection agencies, those companies typically can't go after those life insurance proceeds. So there may be a reason to not cash in your life insurance policy. The flip side is you may need the money and, it, and you don't care that it's going to your medical providers. That's where you want it to go. Um, and so that's a conversation and this is a good segue into why it's really important to have all the professionals on the same page so I would say most of the time for my clients that have substantial assets or life insurance policies, um, I require at least one phone call with their financial advisor um, just to say, you know, is there anything we're missing? Is there anything we could be doing differently? Is there anything you're thinking of doing that I need to know about? Um, and a lot of times there's a disconnect between um, what they plan on doing or what they rec have recommended to their client. For example, gifting. And they may say, you know, we really need to start doing some some heavy, heavy gifting, um, some large gifts. And I when they get me on the phone, I'm saying, well, why are we gifting? Because they say, well, the exemption amount right now is really high. We have a 13 million dollar federal exemption amount, which means when you die, you can leave 13 million dollars to whoever you want tax free. And so they say, so we're going to start making some gifts so we can utilize. Well, really, that the benefit of having the high exemption amount, you only get the benefit if you're going to use the full amount. 
because when that exemption goes down to schedule to do in 2026, it gets cut in half. Um, you only get six million or seven million. So that that benefit, that delta, where it's right now is the six million. You're only really getting benefit out of that if you're going to utilize that full amount. So once I've had that conversation with a financial advisor, sometimes the light bulb goes off. And they go, oh, you're right. Yeah, never mind. We're not going to do the gifting because it's complicated. It costs a lot of money. Um, let's just wait and see what happens with um, Congress and if the exemption amount stays high. So it's just good sometimes to get on the phone with the financial advisors and say, hey, we're thinking of cashing in this life insurance policy. Let's talk through what that looks like. Do they really need the money? Is there other resources we can tap into that, um, you know, potentially might be better to use? And because if if the person does pass away and they have a bunch of money in their own name, is that money going to need to go out to their creditors at their death to pay medical bills or whatever the right. whatever the, the debt may be? Um, so great question. Um, that's why I love talking to the financial advisors. That's why anytime before you're going to make a big decision like that, it's just good to hop on the phone and talk through what that looks like. And if that's something that, um, you know, is advisable, or if there's another solution that, that we can get access to cash that might make more sense and might end up giving you more money in the long run or giving your loved ones more money in the long run. And without it being any kind of tax evasion or fraud or right nothing like that of course tax evasion uh, woo <laughs> all love board um but if, if there's a legal ethical way to do it that could end up with you know you keep having more money at the end of the day then of course we're gonna recommend that so this comes directly from my area of law family law um i see and i have read so many stories on like our facebook groups about single moms and a lot of my clients and a lot of every family law attorney's clients, um, you have a parent, a co-parent who is, um, I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this, a less than desirable person for your kiddos to go with in the event of your death. So for example, you are a single parent, but your co-parent has a serious drug addiction or is abusive um, or, you know, fill in the blank. I've seen everything. What happens if you really don't want your kids to go with that parent? What is that process? Um, I mean, I, I have an idea, but I want you to kind of spell it out because guaranteed we've got listeners that are single parents. Um, who don't think that the other parent would be a good, safe, healthy person for their children to go to. I, I see this a lot. Um, so I have a lot of clients that are single parents. And this is where, Megan, I think our practice areas overlap quite a bit. Um, because there's there's only so much we can do on the planning side to control what happens to the children when you pass away. and And this is where you can weigh in because I'm not really even sure how how this plays out in the long run. But from a planning perspective, either in your will or as a separate document, you can implement what's called a nomination of guardian or conservator. And and you can put in that document the people that you nominate to have custody or guardianship or conservatorship of your minor children at your death. That being said, that nomination is not always guaranteed and it's not always honored, but it's a 
it's a great way for you to express your preference and it's certainly going to factor in when the court is making its decision so um you know when we have usually typically it's more for adults but um in your medical and financial power of attorney you can nominate who could serve as your own guardian or conservator and the court will look to that first so that person has priority to serve but that doesn't always mean that they're the best fit or or that they're eligible or that they're available to serve so from a planning perspective we will um have the the individual the client state in their will that they want their sister or their cousin or whoever it is to be the guardian or the conservator. Um, and, and sometimes they, they're very adamant that they also want to express their strong desire that their ex-partner or the, the, the child's biological mother or father not be the guardian or the conservator. And so that's what the court's going to see, right? I, my understanding in, in family court or guardianship court, the court's going to see that that nomination has been made that the preferences have been stated but there's still there's still a process that the court has to go through to make sure that that person that's been nominated is eligible to serve is fit to serve and is willing and available to serve and then i think that's kind of where it gets more into your territory because after that i usually don't see i mean after it gets to that point after we've probated the will we've published a copy of the will to the courts to the family courts or to the guardianship court we usually don't do a whole lot after that i mean sometimes they'll they'll hire hire our firm to do the guardianship and conservatorship work for the minor child and i have a couple of those right now um but that's usually the other parent is deceased um and so rarely has the other parent come in and challenge that nomination i i have not had that happen yet um have you so have you had a case where Someone has died. There's been a nomination and a will, and then it ends up back in family court. And does the court look I, at the nomination? I personally have not, but I know a few people that have. I've talked to other attorneys about this issue before. Um, and, you know, without going too in the weeds with it for people, um, basically you would have the designation. Let's say mom passed away and dad, I don't. I, there's something making him not... Um, a good fit parent, right? Whether that's a drug addiction or whatever. So mom passes away, you have a minor kiddo and the minor kiddo will end up going with whoever the guardian is, right? Now, let's say dad cleans himself up and three years later says, well, no, I want my kiddo full time. I'm a good fit parent. What they would end up doing is they would end up filing something in um, Colorado District Court where they are asking that they would then have full um, parental responsibilities is what it's called. He, they would file an allocation of parental responsibilities, I would assume. Um, and that's what figures out parenting time, decision-making, child support, all of that. So basically, instead of it being an argument between two parents as to who has um, custody, uh, we call it parenting time, but who has custody when, it would be a argument between the remaining parent and the guardian. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, that's kind of how that would go. Um, but I do think, at least from my perspective in family law, I think it is very helpful to have something written down as to specifically why you don't want 
your kiddo going with this other parent. You know, I mean, to say like, well, they were a shitty spouse and they cheated on me. That's not a great plan because you can have somebody be an incredibly um, horrible spouse, <laughs> but a really good parent. You know, I mean, those two are not mutually exclusive. So um, when people are arguing, though, the court really does want to know what are the reasons? Like, tell me the reasons. Are they were they very abusive? Were they, um, you know, did they have addiction issues that make them an unfit parent? Like, what what are the reasons here? And the court, thankfully, at least in Colorado, will take kind of the, the totality of the circumstances to figure out what is the right move here for this minor child. Mm -hmm. um, so as long as you have something written out and kind of a reasoning behind it so that they don't just think that you're being vindictive from the grave, <laughs> you know, then... Um, I think judges would really like to hear what those reasons are to, mm -hmm. to be able to keep your child with the person that you designated. Yeah. And in those situations, what I would probably do um, in the estate planning documents is um, state the nomination, state affirmatively if there's somebody you don't want to serve. And then I would cite to if there's been previous determinations or court proceedings on somebody's fitness to serve where those allegations have been made or proven um, without having to spill all that out into the will. Um, I would just say, you know, for reference, see case number, this, this, and this. And that way, if the will ever ends up in front of a guardianship court who may not know about or have access to a proceeding that took place in another state where this person's fitness to serve is very, very clearly spelled out, um, that court can then request a copy of that file and then can say, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, this person's definitely not serving as the guardian. Um, so that's what I would do just so that it's it's concise and doesn't have to get into too much detail that the kids might see or the public might see um, and yeah. just references to the to other court case. I like that. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. So we mentioned charitable giving. Um Tell us kind of more about that. You know, like I have my life insurance policy and I think that half of that would be more than enough for my husband to just pay off the house, take six months, be really sad, <laughs> and then like, you know, continue forth. Yeah. Um, but the other half of the uh, death benefit, I, I have a few nonprofits that I would like to see that go to. How does that work? Is that easy peasy to kind of figure out? Are there tax implications? Oh, this is so this is one of my favorite topics because I think this is one of those topics that everyone, we just love talking about. And um, a lot of my clients are charitably inclined. And so there's several ways of giving. Um, you can give during your life, which I think is oftentimes overlooked, uh, especially for my clients that are very blessed with a lot of, um, you know, very healthy finances. Um, they forget or they just don't think about the fact that you don't just have to give to charity at your death. Um, you can do a lot of gifting during your life. And the benefit of that is you get to see the what, what's happening with your money. You get to see the positive impact um, that your money is having. But not all of us have that luxury of, of giving money while you're alive. Um, and it, it would require either a death benefit payout um, or cashing in your your retirement accounts um, in order to have enough money to justify giving some to charity and, and not leaving everything to a spouse or your children. Um, so when there, there's several ways to leave charitable gifts at your death, you can either in your will or your trust just have a certain dollar amount 
or percentage going to one of your favorite nonprofits. Um, Another really popular way of giving that's tax savvy is to leave a portion of your retirement account, so your pre-tax accounts, to charity because they don't pay tax. So if you leave your million-dollar IRA (laughs) to your husband, that's pre-tax, so eventually he's going to have to pay tax on that. Um, But if you leave your million-dollar IRA to your favorite nonprofit, they're going to get a million-dollar IRA, which is fabulous. So you you maximize the value of that gift. Um, So for a lot of clients, when they've gotten to a point where the spouse or maybe they don't have a spouse um, or the children are going to get plenty in terms of an inheritance or they're independently wealthy, um, we will start removing the charities from their wills or their trusts and just naming the charity as the beneficiary of the retirement account or a portion of the retirement account. It doesn't have to be the whole thing. Um, So that's really popular, really tax savvy. And then this goes way beyond the scope of this podcast, but for taxable clients, um, anyone that's listening that currently has um, a sizable estate, individually over 13 million or collectively, if you're married, over 26 million, um, that is by far one of my most my most popular and favorite ways of, of avoiding tax or not paying um, estate tax is to leave whatever is over the exemption amount to a charity because then that takes that asset out of your taxable estate. Your loved ones don't pay any money to the IRS at your death and the charity gets whatever's um, above the exemption amount. So they don't pay a, a penny of tax and neither does your estate. You're not writing a check to the IRS, which always feels good. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 there's there's also ways of incorporating charitable giving during your life to lower your taxable estate um, while giving money to a charity. And and there's actually ways of structuring it so that you get paid an annuity from that gift um, to the charity. Um, there's there's several ways of structuring it so that you actually aren't just parting ways with let's say it's five million. You're not just parting ways with that $5 million. You can part ways with the $5 million, but then you're receiving an annual annuity from it, an annuity payment that's tax-free. Um, so really cool ways of, of giving um, to charities, especially if you have larger estates, that can um, remove your estate from being taxable at death. Uh, but, but for most people, um, especially under the current tax code, that's, that's not an issue. That's not a problem. Um, so I often encourage clients to consider leaving, you know, maybe 10% of their estate or a certain dollar amount um, to certain charities. And then just making sure that stays updated because sometimes people, um, charities dissolve, especially if they're smaller charities. Um, and so just making sure that every few years you're you're looking at um, the your will or your trust and who you've named to receive a gift and making sure that they're still in existence, that that's still an organization that you're committed to helping that's still important to you um and that's typically the more fun part of putting together the will and the trust and thinking about organizations that you want to support or give back to i do not have one of those really really big estates that you are talking about uh nowhere near but my god it just makes me like so excited like ah avoiding taxes (laughs) tax evasion tax evasion i mean all the different ways that you can get so creative with things like I never would have thought of the IRA giving that to a nonprofit. This is why I'm saying, listeners, you don't know what you don't know. Call an attorney. We're not all scary <laughs> and super crazy expensive. And it is very much worth 
asking, just ask the questions. Absolutely. Because um, that, because that is brilliant. Like I'm so nerdy, but that makes me way too excited. <laughs> I'm nerdy too, especially when it comes to tax. Yeah. There's some cool, there's some cool things you can do. And, and again, I, I, I almost every client when we're done with our estate plan, they walk away feeling like that was a really great experience and they're so glad that they did it. Um, and that's not always the case. You know, I, when you're walking away after a divorce or custody issues or a nasty business dispute, it, that's usually when you, you, you don't want to see an attorney. You, you don't like attorneys. They took all your money. It's these horrible experiences that people have. But by Welcome and large, life. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know that all too well. Um, really, it's such a that's why I love what I do, because people enjoy the process. It can be really tough. But once you kind of get over those mental and emotional barriers um it can be a really positive experience and um usually you you end up leaving that experience and that relationship um very 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 pleased with with the outcome and the experience overall and most of us are are really easy to get along with and um i would recommend you know you call and interview two or three estate planning attorneys um, and you'll know, you know, okay, this person, I can talk with them. They're easy to work with. Um, this is going to be a good experience because not, not everyone, um, is that way. I mean, I, there's some estate planning attorneys out there that are, uh, very cut and dry, very tax driven, um, and aren't warm and fuzzy and that's fine. And, and maybe that, maybe that resonates better with you. So it's always worth just interviewing a couple attorneys to see if, when it's a good fit. I think that's really important, you know. I mean, when when you're working with an attorney, you are working with somebody in a very intimate capacity. Um, you know, like when you're going through a divorce, um, they are going to know all of your finances. They're going to know all of the shit that went down in your relationship. You know, I mean, this is this is a intimate relationship. So you I usually tell people, um, especially if they just call me for a quick you know, phone call, hey, I don't know if I need an attorney, blah, 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 blah. We'll talk about it for a little bit. And I will often tell them, like, look, if I am not a good fit for you, if you're not feeling that, I would highly suggest that you maybe call these three people. Um, and I might give them some names because I want my client to feel like they can talk to me and be open and free with all of this information. And that personally or personality-wise, I guess is how I mean that, we really mesh um, so that we have a good, open, honest relationship with each other. Um, do you find kind of the same thing? I mean, I was going to ask you, like, what do you what do you suggest that people specifically look for in an estate planning attorney? Yeah, absolutely. Um, everything you said, I, I think, is is right on point. So you want to make sure that your personalities are are similar, or that it's just somebody that you feel like you can be really open and honest with because similar to family law and estate planning, you're showing all your cards, right? I mean, I, I want to know everything about your family relationships. I want to know everything about your finances. I want to know if we need to do any asset protection. I mean, is there anything that is going on that is, is risky? Um, I have a lot of clients that are orthopedic surgeons, OBGYNs. They get sued all the time. So we're constantly thinking about asset protection. Um, and, and they just have to be, you know, those are uncomfortable subjects. When somebody has to say, yeah, I was, you know, I was sued for malpractice a few years ago. And so I have to go and pull up and the docket and see what was going on there. Has that resolved itself? Can we do some asset protection now and estate planning now? 
um, without it without triggering any kind of fraudulent conveyance allegations. Um, so these are tough subjects. And then, um, you know, end of life discussion. Oftentimes we spend the most time in our meetings looking at that advanced directive document and the client being like, well, what do you think I should do? Like, well, I, you know, and so we have to have these, well, here's how I feel. Here's what, you know, my experience. Here's what, you know, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't want to suffer. I mean, these are really tough conversations that you're going to want to have with somebody that, that you trust, that you know is really um, present, is involved in that conversation, is listening to you, is empathetic. Um, and, and you're in it for the long term for the most part. So I have clients, I mean, I've only been in practice for 10 years, but I have clients from 10 years ago. I have clients who are sending their kids to come see me, who are sending their grandkids to come see me. And these are generational clients. And so you want to partner with somebody that, um, you know, again, the personalities fit, um, somebody that's going to be around for a while, um, that's going to be practicing in this area for a while. Some people dabble. Uh, which is fine, but um, I, you know, this is all I, all I do. And then you also want to make sure that, you know, if you have a taxable estate or you own business interests, does your attorney have experience in that or do they work at a firm that offers full service? So for a lot of my clients, um, they have they have companies. There, There's a, cor- a lot of corporate work. So I just walk down the hall and I can talk to one of our corporate lawyers or our security lawyers and say, hey, can you hop on a call? We're trying to do some estate planning, but it's going to impact the business and the shareholder agreement. So I just want to make sure we're not doing anything that screws up what you guys are doing on the business side. Um, so just understanding the level of complexity, because there's been clients that, you know, they come in and they um, they own a certain type of business that we just don't really deal with. Um, and they're working in multiple states or multiple countries, and that just might exceed our capabilities. And so I'll just tell them, you know, I'd love to work with you, but um, I really think you need to go to a bigger firm and a firm that has more of an international presence. Um, and that's perfectly f- I mean, I, you know, you hate to give away work, but it, it benefits me and it benefits the client if as long as, you know, the scope of that work is something that I'm very comfortable doing and that our firm can um, can handle that level of work. Perfect. Um, so you sent over a few links and we are going to put that in the um episode description for everybody but can you kind of tell us what some of these links are for people um that are interested in maybe doing some of this themselves or looking into something or researching sure yeah absolutely um so one of the documents that i sent over one of the links um this website talks about um the advanced care planning and there's a lot of great resources online that you can go and um pull up you know, whether it's FAQs or it's documents or it's conversation starters, um, just to get you thinking about these types of decisions that you have to make, these conversations that you need to have with loved ones. And there's some really great resources out there. Um, Honestly, through just a simple Google search, there's a lot of articles that people have written. Um, uh, The American Cancer Society has a great website. I think I've I've linked that one as well. Um, And it's just, if anything, it's just, food for thought. So it's just ideas, questions that you can come up with, um, areas of estate planning that you may not think really impact estate planning or that you hadn't thought about before, that when you do decide to make that phone call to an attorney that you're kind of ready with your list of questions. Uh, I would caution against using LegalZoom or doing an online will, um, not because I need more business. Um, There's 
We have no shortage of work. Um, it's truly because I have had to probate several wills that were done on legal zoom or printed off the internet. And almost every single time there are really serious mistakes or really serious omissions that can impact what type of probate we do. So I had mentioned earlier, Colorado has formal probate and informal probate. And if you have really screwed up your will or if the will is invalid, we have to go through formal probate. And it, it just costs more, it takes longer, um, it, it requires more court oversight. And all of that could have been avoided if they had just used an attorney to do a simple will. And um, I'm not sure the cost, you know, I'm sure there's a cost difference. I think I'd seen you can do like a whole estate planning package for under $1,000 on LegalZoom. Um, and our, our fees are a little bit higher, but not that much more higher than that. And the cost of having to go through formal probate or having to throw out the will and go through an intestate proceeding, meaning you die without a will, is going to be so much more of a cost um, in, in the long run than that upfront cost. And a lot of times you're relying on, you know, they say that a local attorney over looks over the documents. Maybe that's true, but that local attorney should not be licensed when I see these wills because there's, there's just really obvious mistakes. Um, just for example, one, it was a, a will and it didn't nominate an executor or a personal representative. It only nominated a guardian for minor children and the person that died didn't even have children. So it's like, how did this get overlooked? I mean, the will was just useless at that point. Um, so yeah, maybe they saved some money, but then when they died and we probated the will, um, it probably caused the legal fees to be double or triple what they could have been if they'd had a valid will. Um, so Yikes. I would, yeah, I would be cautious. I'd be very, very cautious of, of going online unless you know, there are situations if you're truly in a bind and you can't get in touch with an attorney and you're having surgery the next day and you want to go print a medical power of attorney online and take it down to the bank and sign it in front of a notary, go for it. It's probably going to be fine. Um, it's better than having nothing. But if, if, if you're not in that situation and you've got some time, um, it's certainly worth calling an attorney and, and doing it the right way. Thank you for that. Um, Sam, do you have any questions? Call the professionals. Call <laughs> Courtney. Um, that's where I am. <laughs> You've definitely, I've been on receive mode. You have convinced me. I'm not saying I'll call somebody tomorrow, um, but soon, soon-ish, I definitely think I want to thank you for sharing all of this information with me, Megan, all of our listeners. I'm sure everybody is going to appreciate all of the information that you gave to us. And I will sure be listening to this episode on my way to work probably several times. So thank you Notes. for that. And thank you for being here today. Um, yeah. Court Courtney, um, before we go, I was going to ask you, are you okay um, and I can edit this out if need be, but are you okay if people who don't really know where to start, if they reach out to you? Absolutely. I will always okay. take, and you know, the way I do this is if it's somebody that's probably not going to become a client, but just wants to talk to me because I'm an estate planning attorney and I've been through breast cancer, whatever the connection may be. I am more than happy to hop on a phone call when I'm driving to work. I've got a 30-minute commute or a 30-minute commute home and just counseling them through um, really basic 
information or um, connecting them with an attorney where they live um, and just giving them, you know, very basic information Um, because it can be really hard, especially if it's somebody, you know, that feels like um, some of these issues are really personal and they just want to talk to somebody kind of off the record, uh, more on like a, you know, just person to person level. Um, I'm more than happy to do that, especially for the breast cancer community, because we gotta, we gotta help each other out. <laughs> we gotta stick together. Yes. We women do. helping women. <laughs> yeah, well, so I really, really appreciate that. More than happy to do that. That's super generous. And I really appreciate it. So let's do a plug real quick. Um, your name is Courtney Kelly. And what is the name of your firm? So my law firm is Fairfield and Woods in Denver, Colorado. And my email is C-K-E-L-L-E-Y at F, as in Frank, WLaw.com. So anyone can email me at any time. Um, or you can go on our webpage if you just Google Fairfield and Woods um, Law Firm. You'll find me. Um, you just search under Kelly and then you can read my bio. I actually also have some videos that I posted. Um, I think there's about five of them. They're short five minute videos about certain topics in estate planning. And if one of them is a topic somebody's interested in hearing about, they can click on the video um, and listen to a, a brief overview of that topic. Um, and I've also written some articles. So if people just want to, if they really have a lot of extra time on their hands and want to read some articles on estate planning and why it's important to have a will, I did one article on famous celebrities that died without a will. Um, there's some fun reading there as well. (laughs) (laughs) I love that topic. Um, well, Courtney, really, thank you so much for your time and information today. I think this is really helpful for Sam and I, and obviously, um, it will be for a lot of our listeners. We know that it is a really, really tough conversation to have, you know, in theory, talking about it like this, it's a bit easier, but to sit down with somebody and say like, this is. I mean, for every single one of us, it's inevitable that we are going to die, but it is very difficult to have that conversation, maybe knowing that this is sooner for you than it is for most people. Right. Um, and yet, yet again, another reason why finding the right attorney um, that really meshes with your personality, I think, is really important. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, go for it. Um, well, I, you know, just for anyone listening that, is really struggling with with making this a priority it's totally normal i struggle with it these are hard conversations i've really had to work over the years to um kind of compartmentalize some of this work um but i'm still human and i i completely can empathize with how difficult it can be to pick up the phone and have to um actually talk to somebody about end of life decisions um and i i totally get that so for what that's worth um you know, if that's just something you can't prioritize right now, that's fine. Keep it on the list. Um, and when you're in a place to do it, then um, take advantage and, and make that phone call. Um, but you guys have been great. I loved being on here. I'd love to come back sometime if we ever want to deep dive into some other area of estate planning or um, babies after breast cancer or any of those topics. Um, you guys are awesome. So thanks for doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah, I you are now friend of the show, Courtney <laughs> Kelly, and you will be on again as long as you are are happy to. We would love to have you back. Anytime. Anytime. You guys are so, awesome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Um, now, if you had to give like one parting 
piece of wisdom or just kind of to summarize everything that you just said, what what do you think you would say to everybody? You are putting me on the spot here. Yes. Um, I, I have a lot to say, but I'm going to try to boil it down. Um, I would say that you're doing yourself a favor and it's a gift to you and to the people you care about most to just get this done. It's not going to take as much time as you might think. I and most estate planning attorneys are going to be incredibly flexible and bend over backwards to make sure that we can make it as easy and comfortable of a process as possible. Um, and just on the breast cancer side of things, um, you know, I I live in a constant fear of recurrence, and I think that's normal. And I think that talking about it helps. Um, doing stuff like you know podcasting and just just meeting with other women that are in a similar position um, can be really helpful and therapeutic. Um, and and in some ways, that's just kind of facing your fear straight on um and a lot of times i just want to crawl into a closet and hide and not talk about it not see people and there's there's a time and a place for that as well um but i've i've really found a lot of um strength and a lot of benefit out of just putting myself out there and being really open about my experience and collaborating with other people just like today on this podcast so i encourage women to continue to do that um and that's it <laughs> I think that was perfect. Okay. Perfectly summarized. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, a lot there. <laughs> I know I did. I know I did. That's the fun. That's the fun part of being the host. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Courtney. Again, we very, very much appreciate yeah. it. We will have you on again. This is fantastic. Um, and I will let you know too if anybody reaches out to us with any questions right. that I am not capable of answering and Sam is not capable of answering. We will reach out to you as long as that's okay with you. Yeah. Happy to help. Anytime. Awesome. We are not medical professionals and we are not giving medical advice. Everyone's experience with cancer is very different. And just because we did something one way does not mean that it is necessarily the way that you should do it. If you have any questions about your health and well-being, please contact your doctor.